welcome to The Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And together we're rereading the Orb rematchering novels of Patrick O'Brien. And we are still back at the beginning. We're still in the middle of Master and Commander. So Mike, catch us up, please. Which bit of Master and Commander is fresh in our memory? What's coming up for us this week? Oh, thanks. Would love to, Ian. Well, last week in Chapter 7, we learned that with improved gunnery, Jack took some prizes and had his first successful cutting-out expedition as part of blowing up the Almerera battery. Now, that expedition cost Jack his good looks, at least temporarily, on at least half his face, but it did increase Dylan's opinion of him. Stephen was stranded ashore as Jack was commanded to take a bunch of prisoners from some other ships and to join in a search for United Irishmen aboard an American ship. Now, despite his very best efforts, Dylan found the American ship, was sent across, threatened by Father Mangan, did not turn in the United Irishmen that he found, and was having a hard time living with himself. Then, coming back on board at the end of the chapter, he shocked Jack by turning down an invitation to breakfast in the captain's cabin. Well, this time, Jack considers his midshipman. He heads to pick Stephen back up, ponders his own identity, and meets a formidable new enemy. Stephen gains insights into Dylan's thinking. Jack gets bad news from the admiral and takes Stephen to a dinner party at the Hearts. Their highs, their lows, their insights into the human condition, and plenty of classic O'Brien humor. Oh, looking forward to this one, Mike. Thank you so much. We join our heroes in this kind of odd situation. We're joining with Jack as he muses aloud, telling Stephen about his current troubles with Dylan. Unfortunately, the conversation is not going to be very helpful to Jack. Stephen can't help explain whether it was jack's parceling off of the prisoners onto dragon island that has caused the problem nor can he help jack understand whether marshall's unaccountable conduct where that came from because in fact stephen's not there stephen's still ashore jack it turns out is only dreaming stephen he says it was a merely ideal interlocutor we are aboard the sophie though dylan is up on deck communing with the devil and waking up Jack reflects on all the solitude that he has encountered in his new life as a captain, and he's musing again on how he feels separate from the crew. He plans to have a good old talk with Stephen once they're back together, once Stephen's back aboard, and he's reflecting on how comforting it is to have a confidential friend aboard in this, what he calls his hermit's solitude. And Mike, we get a bit of a further reflection here on how Jack responds to these kind of situations. Yeah, O'Brien says Jack has two reactions when really stressed. He's either aggressive or he's amorous. As O'Brien writes, he longed either for the violent catharsis of action or that of making love. And this is going to be an ongoing theme here, I think. Making love and making war here. Mm -hmm. O'Brien sums it up. He loved a battle. He loved a wench. Well, Jack keeps these concerns to himself only discussing them with his ghostly companion. So nobody else on the crew is seeing Jack in this this state, seeing Jack kind of all tense and really trying to work out this relationship with Dylan. And only a very acute observer would notice the change in Jack and Dylan's relationship. However, 
the master, Marshall, whose fondness for Jack was somewhat diminished by Jack's injuries, but also strengthened by Jack's attention to Dylan, as well as the master's concerns that Dylan might out him, if you will, is such an observer. He has noticed that. Now, Marshall once again correctly predicts their landfall. And once again, Jack has very high praise for Marshall's capabilities. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? With this theme, important theme for O'Brien here of the loneliness of command. We've had that already in this book. This theme of, like you say, Mike, the juxtaposition of love and war together, and also together in Jack's character, in Jack's view of the world as well. We're going to come back to this. I know we've seen Jack carrying on with Mercedes the maid. We've seen already, and we know that Jack is having some kind of a, a liaison with Molly Hart, but this is the first time we've heard about Jack's perspective on yeah, what we later on get to call his warm animal spirits. Right. And th- there's another great first, well, almost first here, we get a proper person-to-person connection with Barrett Bonden. And it's funny, as, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, but we all know Barrett Bonden. We know Barrett Bonden from deep, deep from old, old. But actually, we haven't heard very much of him at this early point in this chapter in this book. And very early in this relationship between Jack and Barrett Bonden, Jack is paying him a tremendously high compliment. He sends for him and says, would you like to be rated midshipman? And Bond very politely says, no, thank you. Thanks, Jack, for his good opinion. And Jack is a little bit taken aback. I'm sure he's he's looking for good news and good vibes from somebody, not getting them from Dylan. He's not sure what vibes he's getting from Marshall. Would really like now to get them from Barrett Bonden because Stephen's not around. And he's a little bit taken aback that Bonden basically turns him down flat, very politely. Bonden explains why. He says, I ain't got no learning And he says he is too old to wear round now. And remember, wearing in a ship is the kind of long, slow way of turning a corner. Spoken like a true sailor, as you might say. And Jack reminds Bonden that there have been some good officers that started before the mast, that he himself, Jack, was on the lower deck once. Bonden tells him that he already knows this because one of the Sophie's crew had served on board that ship when Jack was a midshipman who was turned before the mast. And... A little, another moment of self-realization and self-awareness here for Jack, just like he had with the midshipman a, a little while ago. He's realizing now that you know, he's been topping it, the Puritan here, about their conduct with women, and they all know that he had, in fact, himself kept a woman on board a ship when he'd been a midshipman. Meanwhile, he's been ordering all the women ashore, to use Jack's great phrase here, as righteous as pompous pilot, which is, <laughs> <laughs> which is a great Aubreyism, right? Pompous, not Pontius. And th- th- there is a way out of this, okay? This is not a big rift opening up between Jack and Bonden. It's simply something that Bonden decides is not for him. We're, we're going to come back to Bonden literacy later on in the canon, by the way. Right. But Bonden very politely does the, does the next best thing. He wants to help out Jack, and he sees another mate of his, in fact, a relation of his, in the ship's company. He explains that his cousin, George Lucock, is one of the four top men. Unlike Bonden, is both young and literate. Jack says, well, this guy, George Lucock, was just flogged for drunkenness. And I, I love this little calibration that we get of the Navy's, the lower deck Navy's view of drunkenness. And Bond says, well, that's, you know, that, that, that's not a big deal. That his, his mess had won the gunnery prize and um, he had to drink the winner's prize and, and couldn't turn it down. He says, in duty to the giver, meaning in duty to you and the officers, Captain Aubrey. And Jack therefore realizes that this prize that he's given over, while it's highly valued, might not have been the best choice and he might have to think about some different prizes to give out in the future now a nice reflection there on jack and 
how mistakenly he might cling to some of the services and customs of the Navy and a great little lesson on leadership and unintended consequences, which is also, I think, Mike, another theme of the book. Absolutely. Well, Jack, as you, as you say, he's, he's kind of looking for good vibes somewhere. He's not getting them. So I think he's a little prickly at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and as he, as he goes up on deck, you know, he kind of sees Babington and, you know, he hollers at Babington and says, when's the last time you wrote to your parents? And, and O'Brien tells us that Babington's sort of of that age when ever, anytime he's addressed kind of roughly, he knows he's probably guilty of something <laughs> here. And, and, yeah, so he, he gives no good answer. And Jack tells Babington that he's to write a two-page, you know, small print letter home and hand it in with his workings tomorrow. Um, and he reminds Babington to give uh, his father Jack's compliments and tell him that Jack's bankers are whores. And he repeats this loudly <laughs> several times. And then he hears midshipman Ricketts' stifled laugh behind him. So he whips around and he asks Ricketts, when's the last time he wrote to his parents? You know, has he written to them recently? And Rickett says, no. And Jack gives him that, you know, that same command, you know, two pages to your parents and don't ask for a bunch of things here. And Rickett sees, he's, he's pretty smart. He sees how tense the captain is and wisely does not mention that his only parent, his father, is the Sophie's <laughs> purser. And he it's sees him like, you know, every hour and <laughs> communicates with him all the time. But so the crew sees this, though. They see Jack's tension and, you know, you hear one of them. And, and I love how... O'Brien kind of lets us in on things by the secondary characters. <laughs> you know, one of them says, Goldilocks is in a rare old taking about the doctor. Watch out for squalls. So, yeah, not only have we got the Dylan thing going on, not only is Jack looking for some good vibes, Jack's worried they've left Stephen ashore for a very long time, and he's, he's a little concerned about getting him back. Now, I have to say here, you know, we have had a lot of conversation in the different Aubrey Matron groups, the uh, Patrick O'Brien Appreciation Group or Reddit everywhere about audiobooks. And, you know, as everybody knows, I love Patrick Tall. But this is this is one of those jokes that I missed for the longest time until I actually read it, because Patrick Tall would say, my bankers are whores. And I go, gosh, that seems a little crude for Jack. I'm not sure why he's just <laughs> saying that right now. I didn't realize that whores, H-O-R. S-E-S is Seahore and Company, England's oldest private bank. So this is the place that the parents would send money to Jack for their midshipman sons. Being literate, as Barrett Bondin says, is a really good thing. <laughs> it is, especially when you're getting into the territory of plays on words, which is absolutely O'Brien's kind of meat and drink here. We've got a little bit more of the playing on words coming later on in this chapter. As I think Paul Bettany playing Stephen Maturin in the movie says, he who would pun would pick a pocket. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, we get some more good vibes here, but this time for Stephen Matron. They're on the lookout for Stephen, who's due to come back from his extended expedition ashore. The crew spots Stephen ashore, and everyone, ah, you get the, the tension subsides. Everyone's delighted to see him. Um, there's a cheer. And remember, this is a, the guy who's slightly odd. He's only been aboard for a few weeks, maybe a couple of months. And, you know, he's done some pretty cool things like fixing the gunner's brain injury, but a you know, it's quite something for the crew to have really, you know, clung to him like this. He's really delighted with his friendly welcome. He gets back to the ship. He's really delighted as well with Jack's really candid, friendly cry of how very glad I am to see you. And after he's checked over the sick bay, Stephen joins Jack for breakfast. And that's a breakfast that Jack has, has held off. He's delayed until Stephen was safely back aboard. Over breakfast, Stephen explains that he needed to go check on Cheslin because remember this lob lolly boy who Stephen was trying to protect 
from the depredations of the rest of the crew. Well, he said he'd been there perhaps seeking to pay his shipmates back in their own coin, trying to poison them to hurt them as, as they'd hurt him. And also to see if he'd come by a new identity, talking about Cheslin here. And Jack says, well, identity, that's that's something we're born with, isn't it? And Mike, this gets us into that. a really great conversation here, but both to illuminate the subtlety of Stephen's thinking and his worldview on the part of, uh, of Jack, um, and also for us to get a little bit deeper into Stephen's philosophy, and therefore, I think, also Patrick O'Brien's view of kind of you know, enlightenment liberal thinking here. We're born with our identity, is, is Jack's position. And Stephen says, the identity I am thinking of is something that hovers between a man and the rest of the world, a midpoint between his view of himself and theirs of him. For each, of course, affects the other continually. For example, he says, if Jack had been ashore with Stephen, Jack's identity would have changed because everyone there thinks he is, in the words of the text, a false, harsh, brutal, murdering villain, an odious man. And to begin with, Jack's pretty dismissive of this. He says, well, they can call me Beelzebub, but that don't make me Beelzebub. For all those of you who out there who are going to look that up, Beelzebub is just another name for the devil. And Stephen asks, does it not? Does it not? And Mike, again, a big theme that we're going to have in this book and all the way through the canon, does what others think of us make us who we are? To what extent is that true? What does that mean for ourselves and our own perception of ourselves? To what extent can we all rely on our perspective of, of, our, of our place in the world? Um, Jack is wrestling with this, and sometimes that's conscious. Like, Dylan's upset with me. What does he really think of me? Am I shy? Am I a coward? Do I have to prove otherwise? And he's also wondering, in the context of his relationships with the rest of the Navy, he was wondering, what, what does Admiral Keith remember the three other times that he's seen me? What does Keith think of me? And there's this great... Uh, exploration here of the reciprocation, the reciprocal impact between what the world thinks of us and what we think of ourselves. This seems to be at the heart of Dylan's problems. We heard it in the heart of this reported encounter between Dylan and Father Mangan and Dylan's questioning of his own honor. So who the heck am I? What do I look like to the world? What does that mean for me and how I think I should behave? Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I love how O'Brien has this just in one nugget like this. Yeah, it took yeah. me years of therapy to even start to get a finger hold on this thing. <laughs> and okay. I'm going to say, by the way, I, would, I think I said this at about the same point when we did our first read through of these of, of these chapters. This is the kind of stuff that elevates O'Brien way above C.S. Forrester and Hornblower, in, in my view. Like, I love Hornblower to bits, read them all. But this is the real the real core of where this writing takes you so much deeper. Right. Yeah. Hornblower just stays depressed. O'Brien tells us why. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, Stephen kind of follows up on this a little bit. He he wants to give Jack a little bit of insight into what's going on ashore. So Stephen tells Jack that a wealthy merchant, Matteo, who owned the uninsured Quicksilver cargo that Jack took, as well as half the cargo in one of the tartans that Jack burned, this guy has persuaded government to send, you know, Stephen calls it a man of war. And, and he and Jack have a conversation about, well, private guys can't get a man of war. That's a, that's a, that's a kingship. Uh, or a ship of force called the Cacafuego after the Sophie. 
And he says that the Sophie is now well known to everybody, known by name, known by description. Mm. Um, now, Jack is is interested in this. He asks Stephen a lot of uh, questions. You know, well, what did you find out about her? How is she rigged? How many cannons does she have? How many, and, and Stephen's like, ah, I didn't even think to ask about that. But the way they spoke about her, he says, she must be some prepotent great Argosy. Interestingly, Argosy, I, I, I kept thinking about Jason and the Argonauts and yep. the Argo, and apparently it has nothing to do with that. That it, you know, Shakespeare oh. uses this term a lot about a very, very large merchant ship or a flotilla of such ships yep. here. So, you know, at least something of considerable force here. Then, you know, Jack doesn't seem to be overly concerned. He says, well, we'll just try to stay out of her way and we'll change our appearance to deceive her in case we meet her. Now, we remember from that all-seeing eye in the darkness in the last chapter that these two ships almost collided before in the darkness. Ah, but that was before Jack realized who she was and that she's hunting the Sophie, or even at that point knew she existed. So, so realizing our identity changes our perception of the world, right? Now that now that he knows Kakafoigu and kind of kind of pin her in the world relative to the Sophie, his perception of her changes. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, very deep. And I, I, I love this next part where Stephen is explaining how he had come by this knowledge. Stephen explains that he had picked this up um, whilst dancing to the Sardana with Matteo's cousin after church. And by the way, I love the line in the text where Jack can't compute that Stephen was dancing. And it was as if Stephen had said, I learned this while I was eating cold roast baby. And Jack does the, the classic double take. Wait, what? You were dancing? And they were dancing this, this dance called the, the Sardana. And Jack's never heard of this. He, uh, Stephen picks up Jack's fiddle and plays out the air of one particular Sardana, somewhat in the Moorish taste. And a Sardana is a traditional Catalan dance. Um, we will post onto our social media... Um, some footage of people, contemporary 21st century Catalans, dancing a sardana in a square outside a church. It's a circular, very communal, very kind of almost raucous community dance. Um, there's also, if you're interested, and we'll post a link to this as well, a really beautiful arrangement of a sardana tune for cello fans out there by the great cellist Pablo Casals, arranged for like an ensemble of like 40 cellos. So we'll send you a couple of versions of our sardana references out there on the social media. So look out for them. Jack is really nonplussed that Stephen didn't stay in hiding at the house of his friend in kind of air quotes. He still believes that Stephen was ashore for some kind of liaison. And Stephen reminds Jack that he, Stephen, can ride anywhere in Spain without any hesitation, without any uneasiness. And we get, again, a little bit closer to our understanding of Stephen Maturin's potential or perhaps actual or perhaps future identity here. When Jack suggests that Stephen could learn when convoys and galleons are sailing. Certainly I could, said Stephen. Underline the next part, if I chose to play the spy. It is a curious and apparently illogical set of notions, is it not, that makes it right and natural to speak of the Sophie's enemies, yet beyond any question, wrong, dishonourable and indecent, to speak of her prey. Yes, said Jack, looking at him wistfully. You must give her a hair her law. There is no doubt. And Mike, there's, there's, there's a couple of really interesting bits of subtext here. 
first of all, this, this fresh mention of Stephen's potential future side hustle. Uh, Matteo is in fact the name of a Catalan-based or Catalonia-based British intelligence agent in World War II, and maybe there's a connection here to some experience or some knowledge that O'Brien had himself from his own intelligence work. We don't hear about Matteo ever again, I don't think, so that's kind of left open for us to speculate about. Well, there's a, there's a reference in Fortune of War in Chapter 2, just a brief reference. So that's way down the line here. We'll yeah. we'll get back to that. But again, we'll put that little pin in there to say we're eventually going to come back to this time of Stephen Ashore, perhaps, uh, in, in terms of this side hustle. Yeah. Oh, great. Good find. Thank you. And meanwhile, Mike, this, this idea of giving a hair her lore, what, what's all that about? Well, that was fascinating. I kept thinking, give you, give a hair her law. In there's this ancient sport of hair coursing, set, you know, having dogs compete about chasing rabbits. And the law is the head start that's required for the hair. So, you know, the rabbit gets a certain head start. It, this was kind of, it came about under Elizabeth. I mean, ancient Romans, Greeks were doing this sort of thing. But in Elizabeth I's reign, this idea of a law came into being. But even though that's Elizabeth, this is really a very contemporary reference for the time of this novel because the first modern coursing club, this, this you know, dogs racing after hares, was established in Swaffham in 1776. Uh, interestingly, hair coursing is illegal now, but only since 2004. Wow, fascinating. Yeah, we we have all the dummy hares that run on the greyhound tracks. Here. <laughs> oh, we have those as well. Right, we have right, those as well. Jack tells Stephen that he's really glad Dylan did not find any of the United Irishmen on the American ship, since Stephen had told him that, that you know, these United Irishmen were good creatures on the whole. Now, Stephen had heard that they were looking for Frenchmen, not Irishmen. And Jack says, you know, no, no, they were United Irishmen pretending to be French. But after an hour-long search, Dylan hadn't found them. And Jack can't understand why it upset Dylan so much. Now, He's about to really launch into this whole conversation that he had in his dream about his relationship with Dylan, but he stops. He, he stops himself right, you know, nips it right in the first few words and changes the subject to the prisoners that they had put ashore and, and how upset that Dylan was yeah. about putting them ashore, but that, in fact, all the officers on the Sophie agreed that they they had to do that. They didn't have enough rations for them. And that Jack was pretty upset because the officers who commanded it were doing so for their own convenience, not for any good of the service. But he, he remarks about how Dylan was so chuff and Pope holy. So once again, you know, Jack with a deaf ear to his Irish friend here, um, <laughs> his Irish Catholic friend, I would say. Now, Stephen asked if that was not wrong, if Jack might not be court-martialed for not taking them back to Mahan. And, and Jack winces and says to Stephen, never say the word court-martial. And, uh, uh, but Jack, you know, kind of dismisses it, says he's going to be fine as long as they return to Mahan with a thundering great prize at their tail. Now, he says they're going to have to go. They're going to have to go quickly. They can only take one because their crew is so reduced. They don't have even enough men to to put another crew on a prize and that they're going to have to eat their boots soon if they stay out much longer because they're down to so few supplies left. So he's hoping to get that one more prize off Barcelona, his original plan for this cruise. Yeah, we're, we're building up a bit of jeopardy here. We've got this really strong desire for just one more bit of action out of the cruise, but we've got this bad supply situation. 
The crew, meanwhile, is still on board with the program of chasing a further prize. They're working to disguise the Sophie so that she looks like the Danish brig that we met a few chapters ago. I'm like, yet, yet another play on identity and perception here. Right. And as this is going on, Stephen and Dylan are rowing around her, observing the work and talking. And O'Brien's had to work quite hard to contrive a further chance for Stephen and Dylan to have a private unattended conversation away from the prying ears of the rest of the ship's crew. And Dylan is really bitterly, uh, you know, ang- regretful and also angry about the way this has all come about. He says he did everything he could possibly do. Uh, it was He did unthinkable things like altering course, shortening sail, blackmailing the master, and still they stumbled into finding this American ship. And Stephen says, well, I'm, I'm glad about this, actually, because then someone else might have been in your position and might have actually taken these United Irishmen. And Dylan says that he had already, in advance of the encounter, decided not to take them, but that he that, that had ended up with him looking like he'd yielded to a bit of blackmail and a bit of kind of bad treatment from Father Mangan here. Dylan says, it looked exactly as though I were yielding to a vulgar threat. And two minutes later, I was sure I had. And repl- Maturin replies, but you had not. It's a sick fancy. Indeed, it is not far from morose delectation. Take great care of that sin, James, I beg. As for the rest, it's a pity you mind it so. What does it amount to in the long run? And here we get the the worldview of James Dillon. A man would have to be three parts dead not to mind it so, and quite dead to a sense of duty. And we get a little moment inside Stephen reflecting on what he would like to have said at this point. He wants to say, do not hate Jack Aubrey. Do not drink so much. Do not destroy yourself for what will not last. Great advice. Amen, Stephen. Right. <laughs> but Stephen realizes that Dylan might just explode if they continue this conversation. Dylan's right on the brink of some kind of a crisis. He decides to let it go and falls back on his uh, physician's perspective. He says, I'm going to give him a black draft and mandragora that evening so mike we've we've got a few different things going on here Uh, we've got mandragora and a black draft what's what what are these well the black draft is is um you know it's described as a liquid purgative consisting of an infusion of set out with sulfate of magnesia and an extract of licorice so mostly it's just a laxative. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then we've got this mandragora, which is a narcotic. So a laxative and a narcotic. Everybody's favorite 80s party um, set here. And, and this thanks to uh, the Matron's Medicine website. We appreciate that. So <laughs> Stephen's going to fix them up <laughs> with uh, a few jewels from his, uh, from his medicine chest. And how about morose delectation? That sounds like a very delicious turn of phrase for Stephen there. Yeah, this is this is interesting. At the time, a mortal sin by the Catholic Church. I'm, I'm, and from what little research I did on this, I'm assuming that it, it's, it perhaps may not be now, but it's the habit of dwelling with enjoyment on evil thoughts. You know, and some people have said sort of like it's, you know, you're enjoying it. You're not wanting to go after it, but you're just sitting with those thoughts here. Yeah, you may know more about this, and this is this sounds like something that I do unconsciously all the time. I don't oh, know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, all Catholics are meant to be guilty about all of their thoughts all the time. I think I, a bit, discriminating um, about guilt is 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 a, is a step too far for me. This does sound like an imprecation against listening to true crime podcasts. I've got to say, there you go, there you go. <laughs> That's right. 
But I do love Stephen's little insight. Do not destroy yourself for what will not last. I mean, you know, I'm always amazed at these mindfulness, you know, precepts that come through here going, look, this is your emotion talking to you right now. This is not real. This is, you know, this is stuff you're telling yourself here. Yeah. And and still inside Stephen's headspace and his recollection of the encounter as he goes on and says, JD required to play Iscariot either with his right hand or with his left and hating the necessity, the absolute necessity, concentrates all this hatred on poor J.A., Jack Aubrey, which is a remarkable instance of the human process. For in fact, JD does not dislike J.A. at all. Far from it. And again, a, a, a bit of identity play here. Dylan likes Aubrey. But Dylan can't help hating the aspect of Aubrey that represents all these things that are defeating Dylan in his quest for kind of purity of honor and duty. Right, right. Boy, yeah. And it's, it, you know, we've got this thing. It's it's not looking good for Dylan. It's certainly yeah. not looking good for Dylan and Jack or, you know, general relationships on the Sophie here. And just this whole you know, what do I think of myself? What do others think of me in this continual reciprocal impact? So they're, they're rowing back to the Sophie. And Dylan says that he hopes they're going to take the Sophie into action very quickly. You know, that, it, that it's a wonderful way of reconciling a man to himself and <laughs> with everyone else sometimes. And and I'm, I'm kind of at a little ouch here. You know, Jack, we'd heard, you know, I either want to make love or make war. Dylan's like, oh, let's go into action here. And I, I was getting one of those kind of be careful what you wish for foreshadowing feelings here, like a little, yeah. little ominous music. Well, Stephen, you know, I think has gone out to talk with Dylan, not really understanding what all Dylan's going out to look at. And then he asked Dylan about all these changes to the Sophie. And Dylan explains that they're dressing Pram up as a Danish officer. And, you know, they're changing the paintwork to just look like that other ship, the Clomer. And um, Stephen's a little wondering about this. And, and Dylan says, no, 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 this is fine. It's a perfectly legitimate ruse de guerre. Often we amuse the enemy with false signals too. anything but those of distress. And so it's one of those fascinating (laughs) things that we get into here all this time about, okay, what is okay to do and what's not okay? You know, we can completely tell you that we have a completely different identity, but we can't tell you that we're in distress. No, indeed. Um, you know, and, and you know, we'll, we'll hear about a quarantine flag uh, flying later and go, oh, well, this seems to be one that, you know, seems to jump on the other side of that line here. Mm. But, you know, so Stephen as we'll hear ongoing in the canon, has this curiosity of, and, and this skepticism a little bit about ethics at sea, ethics on land, and his differences in understanding ethics, and he being a landsman perhaps. Um, and once again, what we believe, what we tell ourselves, the differences in what we count as honorable playing out here amongst all these characters here. Well, now we we hit a classic scene in you know in the canon Ian, you want to tell us what happens here this is this is oh my gosh you know we're going to see this again and again but here's our first this is a a, a great physical comedy moment by the way o'brien really writes physical comedy really well when you consider that it all takes place in our imagination getting back on board the sophie stephen falls he falls into the sea between the ship and the boat he comes up he gets his head stuck between them and he sinks and this is like instant instant you know danger and jeopardy for stephen here and Jack and almost every other man in the Sophie who can swim 
dives in after him and many of the rest of the crew grab anything they can think of that might help to save him and thank thank heavens for them the brothers sponge they retrieve Stephen five fathoms down that's 30 feet down 30 feet down is a heck of a long way down he has heavy bones we learn and he has this habit really peculiar unaccountable habit of wearing lead-soled half boots and of course, Stephen's reaction at being rescued is absolutely not one of simpering gratitude. He is furiously indignant. This is, a, again, a recurring reaction. We're going to see from Stephen the whole canon anytime anybody tries to help him. And uh, I'm just thinking here, Mike, it's a good thing that we were introduced to the Sponge Brothers in the Remora incident a couple of chapters ago. Otherwise, Stephen would have had to have been rescued by a stranger. And where's the story in that? Right. And, 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 you know, with his heavy bones and his lead soled shoes, you know, it, being 30 feet down by the time they get to him, I'm not sure anybody else, even Jack, might have been able to do it. Mm-hmm. So we need to have these deep sea, these sponge divers that can stay under for minutes at a time. Yeah. Wow. So we've had Stephen rescued. He's getting back aboard a ship that's riven with anxiety and tension and conflict, conflict between members of the gun room and members of the crew, conflict in individual members of the gun room, especially James Dillon. And we have a dinner at one of O'Brien's great set pieces for exploring and uncovering what was really happening between the people um, is a mealtime. And it almost seems like this accident to Stephen is, is going to be the rescuing of this gun room dinner. It turns out to be a good topic of conversation. They get talking about swimming and they can all reasonably uncontroversially expound to each other. Brian writes this in this nice kind of passive prose here. It's rarity among seamen, its advantages, the preservation of life, the pleasure to be derived from swimming in suitable climates, the carrying of a line ashore in an emergency, its disadvantages, the prolongation of death agonies in shipwreck, in falling overboard unseen, it flying in the face of nature, had God meant men to swim, etc. The curious inability of young seals to swim, the use of bladders, the best ways of learning and practicing the art of swimming. And a great little stream of consciousness in report and speech there from O'Brien. And we get another fantastic bit of physical humor here. The purser is demonstrating. For the seventh time, we learn that, in his words, the only way to swim is as follows. And he joins his hands together like he's praying and shoots them out in front of him. This time, says O'Brien, he did strike the bottle, which plunged violently onto the Solomon Gundy and thence deep in thick gravy into Marshall's lap. And now now we get the moment of another little comic trope of O'Brien's. He's going to phoneticize and slightly lampoon the Scottish intonation of Marshall the Master. I knew you would do it, cried the master, springing about and mopping himself. I told you so. I said, sooner or later, you'll knock down that damn decanter. And you can't swim a stroke, prating like a horse and otter. You've wrecked, here we go, favourite line of the moment, you've wrecked my best nankeen trousers. With apologies to all of the Scots people listening at my terrible accent. Well, says the purser sullenly, I didn't go for to do it. And the evening relapsed into a barbarous gloom. Ha! (laughs) So what we thought was going to be a rescued social occasion, Mike, turns out to have been yet another disaster. Yeah, and and me, you know, for years of Patrick Tall going, prating like a horse and otter. A horse (laughs) and an otter? What? What? (laughs) Once again, it's good to get back to the text. Oh, my. Well, 
throughout the sloop, you know, O'Brien tells us people are kind of low in their spirits that night. Jack's feeling like he's failed to attain a happy ship. Um, Dylan is trying to fend off despair with with almost mechanical prayers now, which have eventually led him, as O'Brien writes, to a hatred for the established order, for authority, and so for captains, and for all those who, never having had a moment's conflict of duty or honor in their lives, could condemn him out of hand. The master is up on watch. He's dreading being exposed by Dylan. And, and Jack, who would love to invite Stephen for music and discuss the reasons for Jack's failures, but now even Jack is, is so low here because he knows, as, as O'Brien writes, an invitation to the captain's cabin was very like an order if only because the refusing of it was so extraordinary. That had been borne in upon him very strongly the other morning when he had been so amazed by Dylan's refusal. Where there was no equality, there was no companionship. When a man was obliged to say, yes, sir, his agreement was of no worth, even if it happened to be true. He had known these things all his service life. They were perfectly evident, but he had never thought they would apply so fully and to him. So all this, this suffering, uh, some of the psychological suffering on this little ship, this human behavioral lab, we've you know, heard it called, all of this rolled into nautical historical fiction with all the authentic trimmings, as, as you say. And it, you know, this just quite elevates this writing. It's amazing. It really does. It really does. And it's it's not only Jack who's thoughtful. It's not only Marshall and Dylan who are feeling at odds with the world. We go to the midshipmen's berth, and they are deep in melancholy. Mowat and Pullings are away in prize cruise, so there's only Babington and Ricketts, and they've been watch and watch every four hours. They're exhausted. Babington also is homesick from asking after everyone and everything in this letter back home that Jack has forced him to write. He's also afraid because the clerk, Richard's, has been practicing on him a little and has said that his hair and teeth will fall out and his bones will soften and he'll be covered with sores and blotches from, to use the word that Ricketts uses here, uh, conversing with harlots. And this is a little aspect of Babington's uh, personal predilections that we're going to come to know and love. Young Ricketts, in turn, has learned that his father intends to get them both transferred to a safer berth, to a storeship or a transport. And Ricketts does not want to leave the Sophie, does not want to leave active duty, does not want to leave the life, O'Brien says, that he loved so passionately. And it's interesting, as, as Jack's worrying about his perceived failures, that th this is quite the compliment. Um, uh, this young midshipman, just brought recently on board, has grown to really, really love service, and particularly the kind of service that you encounter under the leadership of Jack. And even the ordinary crew members know that something's not right. There's this feeling of gloom, over and above the, the snappishness of the individual officers, the Sophie is not at top form then when the drum beats to quarters in the morning. And like O'Brien seems to really like painting a picture of a crew partly at war with itself just before the drum beats for action here. Yeah. And, and Jack always wants his crew to be well fed before action. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking if we may be going into action, maybe we should pause, take a little break so our listeners can refresh themselves as we respond to this drum beating to quarters. We should grab some hard tack. We'll be right back after this break. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. I hope you got refreshed and I hope you're ready for a little bit of action here because it seems like we might be on the verge of something. Jack has called Stephen up on deck from where he was in the Orlop. They've spotted a large Zebek frigate, four times the bulk of the Sophie. They thought that she was a merchantman at first and especially with these Latin masts that a Zebek has, she would have looked like a regular commercial ship. But then they saw one side of her 32 gun ports that are disguised in paintwork these gun ports are open and they can see what a powerful unit she is. She has a very large crew, 300 or more men on deck, partly because with you need that many men to handle this Latin rig, changing the sails from one side to the other. It's a really involved process. But that also means she's a formidable opponent if you were to come to close quarters and get into boarding and repelling. The Sophie then goes completely fully into her impersonation of this Danish brig. They heave to half a cable from the frigate. I'm like, this is a really tense moment. Jack asks Stephen to use his foreign language capabilities to, to back up Pram, who's dressed as a Danish master, who's telling the other ship that they are, in fact, the brig Clomer, this Danish brig, a few days out of Algiers. Jack's on the scene, but he's just directing things very quietly. He says he believes that... <laughs> almost as if he believes that the officer's telescopes on the other ship magnify his voice. The Zebek frigate leaves her gun ports open and returns to changing from a Latin to a square rig when she hears the word clomer, but then decides to send a boat across. And might, they might be at the moment here where they can't avoid action, and there are all the tables against the Sophie at this point. Jack's worried that they're not going to be able to avoid fighting her. He checks on the guns. Dylan says, yes, they're all triple-shotted. On Dylan's face, Stephen notices what O'Brien calls the look of mad happiness that he'd known often enough in former years, the contained look of a fox about to do something utterly insane. So here we go. Dylan, crazy like a fox. Wow. As the Spanish boat is about to hook on, Stephen, and Mike, here I think Stephen is kind of improvising I think he's seeing the situation for what it is and improvising, but we'll find out everybody else's reaction. He speaks to them in Scandinavian-accented Spanish, calls out to them asking if they have a surgeon on their ship who understands the plague. Some of their men, he says, had caught something in Algiers. There are swellings, there are buboes. He says, please grab hold of this ear rope uh, and come and have a look and, and ask them to go and get into their boat so they can get some medicine from their surgeon. And hearing the word plague... And being invited to grab hold of a rope, this straight away turns off this uh, little boat party from the Caca Fuego. They back off quickly. They row away from the Sophie, ask God and his mother to preserve them. And they tell the Sophie to stay away. Keep out to sea, they say, or they'll fire on you. And as the ships drifted closer, an officer on the other ships asks if they've seen an English brig. Pram says no. And at that moment, Mike, we know that this disguise thing has paid off, at least for now. Jack says, ask them their name. And they reply, confirming what we've all already guessed. It's the Cacafuego. And they wish the Clomer a happy voyage. Oh, man. That's, uh, you know, this this is a really tense moment. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. And I, I think, like you, it, Matron is completely winging it here. And he yeah. saves them. I mean, this is it. This is going to be, you know... 
and and uh, Jack's delighted uh, as as they're leaving. Jack explains this, you know, and I'll I'll, I'll give it the the um, the Patrick Tall and I say the Zebek frigate yeah. <laughs> on this a, a Brit on this side of the pond trying to to you know, say it for us. He explains that Stephen, there's nothing faster. She can sail on a Latine, you know, which is on the wind. And then she can change her complete rigging up to square rig otherwise. And since the Cacafuego is heading north, they're heading south here. And in his cabin, looking at the chart uh, with Dylan, you know, he tells Dylan that he thought they were dished. As Jack says, you know, he thought they were burnt, sunk and destroyed hang drawn and quartered and he starts laughing repeating you know some of Stephen's lines and and then he kind of looks up and and Dylan looks so rigid faced and not laughing and chuckling and he wonders he asks him why Dylan is not more amused and then boom here it lands you know we just missed one big (laughs) action and I think we get a smaller one between these two Dylan says to tell you the truth sir I was so astonished at our shearing off that I have scarcely had time to relish the joke. (laughs) Why, said Jack, smiling, what would you have had us do, rammer? I was persuaded that we were about to attack. Now, I wish I could do this in Tull's stern Irish uh, James Dillon voice here, but you know, Dillon is very passionate here. He says, I was persuaded that that was your intention. I was delighted. Jack says, what, a 14-gun brig against a 32-gun frigate? You're not speaking in earnest. Certainly, says Dylan. When they were hoisting in their launch and half their people were busy in the rigging, our broadside and small arms would have cut them to pieces, and with this breeze we would have been aboard before they had recovered. Oh, come now, says Jack, and it would scarcely have been a very honorable stroke either. Jack thinking, you know, we're still showing the Danish flag. We can't just take her like that. Well, says Dylan. Perhaps I am no great judge of what is honorable, sir, says Dylan. I speak as a mere fighting man. Boy, and now, boy, oh. you know, he has absolutely shoved the hot poker at Jack. You know, the subtext being, you know, I'm a mere fighting man, unlike you. But Dylan, I think, unconsciously has put his finger on it when he says, you know, I'm no great judge of what is honorable. And I want to yeah. say, you, boy, would you listen to yourself, Dylan? Yeah. But man, this is, this is, this is pretty strong stuff. I'm thinking about Jack and Stephen meeting at the uh, the music room in the first paragraph of this book. Oh, yeah. Almost coming to a duel. This, oh my gosh, this is, yeah, boy, this, I can't believe this is not going to completely blow up here. Yeah, and, you know, you, you kind of wonder who else is listening in on this. If this was said to oh Jack in gosh. public, this would be a really big deal, I think. Well, I, I hadn't even thought about that again. You're right. Uh, you know, Brian's reminded us so many times how much yeah. all this stuff in the cabin can be overheard. And clearly yeah. this is no whispered conversation. Right. Wow. Just as he set us up for action, which got undercut by Stephen and his play group, just as he set us up for potentially a confrontation between Jack and Dylan, O'Brien undercuts that as well. And we cut straight to Sophie being back in Mahon. The crew is ashore, and once again, they're awash in wine and women and high spirits and good eating. Jack is having an interview with the Admiral. And we had said so far that it seemed like, you know, Admiral Lord Keith is on Team Jack, and it's it's all those other guys that we should worry about. Well, pretty clearly, Keith's patience and tolerance for a bit of, uh, a bit of saucy insubordination is not inexhaustible. 
Lord Keith is questioning Jack here about leaving the prisoners behind on Dragon Island. So you were driven to it by necessity? Had you been driven to it by a want of discipline, he said slowly, by a dislike for subordinating your judgment to that of your seniors, I should have been compelled to take a very serious view of the matter. Very carefully chosen words there by right. the Admiral. He reminds Jack how much Lady Keith, that's Queenie, reminds Jack how much Lady Keith thinks of him. And he's worried about Jack's prospects. This very well-informed Admiral recites all, you know, basically Jack's personnel jacket here. He says, let me just talk you through your list of misconduct here. Petulance, neglect of orders, undue independence, temerity, insubordination, ill behavior, and drunkenness on shore. And with all of these kind of listed on the page in front of him, Lord Keith does not see how Jack could ever be promoted to post-captain. You can't have a man commanding a ship of the line when fighting a fleet engagement with his own entirely independent notion of strategy. And Jack is learning that loneliness of command doesn't mean complete independence of command either. Each one who commands also obeys, and Jack hasn't shown very much sign of being willing to obey. Right. And something extraordinary, says the Admiral, would have to happen for Jack to be promoted. And as this is going on, Jack realises that it's all true. And he moves from being ashamed to holding off his anger that was about to take control of him. And again, we we can probably guess, and we're going to learn in later books, that you know, Jack can really take against some of these interviews with superior officers, and it can almost be his undoing. Lord Keith finishes this off by saying that Jack is lucky. Lucky Jack Aubrey and that no other commander has been as successful in their cruising as Jack. So when Jack returns from his mission to Alexandria, he's going to get another cruise. Oh, my gosh. So from being on the verge of kind of career in ruins here, Keith is saying, well, you are actually lucky, so I'm going to let you keep doing the same thing that you're doing because you seem to enjoy it. And I think in parenthesis here, you're also making money for Admiral Lord Keith. But he's saying... Your career is going to be small ships in the Western Mediterranean sun forever unless you shape up. So the, the, the cruise, I think, is enough for Jack to feel like he's getting away from this interview reasonably uh, unscathed. The Admiral rather skeptically says, luck rarely lasts, so I'm backing it while it's here, which is another way of saying, you know, don't get too high on your horse there, sunshine. And Jack thanks him, offers his uh, affectionate duty to Lady Keith and withdraws. And Mike, Jack is really upset as he walks away. Again, we've had this before. Jack coming away from a conversation with a superior officer, wishing that he had the, the moral courage and the, and the vocabulary and the presence of mind somehow to kind of pin one back on the Admiral. He thinks, if Hart was to use the same tone with me, I'll wring the nose off his head and damn the service. And who does he turn to in these situations? He goes, turns back to the inn. He goes back to Mercedes, the, the chambermaid, and calls for wine and brandy, says damn all admirals and mercy replies that the admiral is a good man she calls him a topping old admiral uh, and she goes on to recite the commonly known knowledge around the harbor here which is that he's going off on another cruise as soon as he gets back from alexandria i'm like there's a, there's a little warning note here about the intelligent position of the british forces in mahon and about who knows what about who's going where and jack says well i wish that he knew much, as much about Spanish sailings as he did about English ones because I might be able to use that information. Mercedes says, well, I have an aunt who knows about Spanish sailings and Jack is keen to keep this conversation going later that evening. Meanwhile, Mike, 
we have another strange kind of reversal here as Jack goes in for an encounter with Captain Hart. Yeah, you know, we just heard that Jack's ready to rip Hart's nose off, but in fact, Hart receives him very civilly. He congratulates him on the battery at Almerera. You know, says that that thing is really, you know, kind of harassed some of their ships, and it was about time somebody did something about it. And he invites Jack to dinner. Uh, says that Molly Hart would also love to have Jack's surgeon come along with him. And Jack mentions that he'll stop by and pay his respects to Mrs. Hart. And Captain Hart says, well, you know, don't bother going this morning. She's off riding with Colonel Pitt. And he's saying, you know, I can't figure out how in the world she gets out and rides in this awful heat. Uh, and this is this is maybe a little clue to us <laughs> for something else that's going on here. Now, Captain Hart then says that Jack can do him a service. And now maybe we get a little clue as to why this civility here. He says that his money man wants to send his son to sea and that Jack has an opening for a midshipman. So, you know, so there you have it. It's basically, you know, this guy needs to place his son on a ship. You've got an opening. So I guess that's taken care of. And then you see Hart kind of going back to, so you're just going to do it. Well, he does say that Jack will meet this man and his wife who had gone to school with Mrs. Hart at dinner. Mm. And by the way, as, as, as we get past this, we notice another little, uh, a little tiny nugget of Cochranism here in the paragraph. Hart's mentioned that at Almerira, um, the opposition cannons had hold the palace and knocked away one of the topmasts of the Emerald. There was actually a, an engagement involving Thomas Cochrane and the palace and the Emerald, not here, not now, but on the west coast of France and a couple of years after this. But these are clearly little moments and little you know, mentions of real people and ships that are keeping the story ticking over here. Ah, and O'Brien kind of pointing us back to Cochrane. Well spotted. Yeah. Well spotted, Ian. Well, it's, it's fascinating. So we just had Jack and Captain Hart uh, and, and a mention of Molly Hart. And and we get, you know, O'Brien very cleverly. <laughs> it's crazy. Like, but, you know, he's always joining one paragraph to another. And I think he does, but perhaps a little more subtly now with a classic scene from the canon. Yeah. We, we get our first example of really, really significant animal personification. Um, and it's not a dog. It's not a horse. It's a prey mantis. And we go from hanging out with the naval um, establishment on shore in Mahon into a very, very intimate kind of moment with Stephen closeted away somewhere observing two praying mantises. He's observing a male approaching a female. And the male jumps back a little bit whenever she moves. There's obviously some caution on the part of the male praying mantis. And he's observing the courtship ritual. She finally, she, the female prey mantis, finally looks back at the male and gives him some kind of a signal, at least he sees that as her consent, mounts her, and they copulate. As Stephen makes notes, he's noting the time. He notices that the female moves her head just very slightly, opens her jaws slightly, and there's a blur. Stephen can't follow it, and the male's head is off. The female is holding her mate's head in the crook of her arm. And Mike, this is really chilling, delicious description of how as she's holding the, the decapitated head of this male mantis, the female mantis is uh, biting into it, and it says, the glow fades from its eyes. <laughs> and meanwhile, the male's body continues to copulate even more strongly, all his inhibitions having been removed, and make of that what you will about O'Brien's view of the relationships between human men and women. Stephen makes another note of the time. Ten minutes later, 
the female takes off and starts eating pieces of the male's thorax as the body continues to copulate. And Jack walks in saying that he's, he's been monitoring his clock on his own account here. He'd been waiting for Stephen for 15 minutes. Stephen's apologetic, he says. Um, I set my watch back to time this copulation of these two mattresses and I'm ready to go. And I, Jack might have cause to stop and say, why were you observing, you know, mating between these two bizarre animals here? But he, he drops that. He says, you're coming, but you're not coming in those infamous half boots uh, and asks why they had lead soles, those lead soles that had caused the accident earlier on. And instead of his usually sharp reply, Stephen, who's recognized that Jack must have had a touch with the Admiral that afternoon, changes shoes and merely remarks, you do not need a head nor even a heart to be all a female can require. Ah, Mike, we're, we're back here in the motif of O'Brien using animals to point out important lessons for our, the human characters in our story here. We, we really are, Ian. And this, boy, this scene is so chilling, as you had mentioned here. And so, you know, we keep this in mind because O'Brien does not just drop these for no reason. So we'll, as we always say, stick a pin in that. And, and again, see how that comes back to tell us something about what's going on here. Well, Jack then asked Stephen if Stephen has anything that will help Jack keep his wig on. You know, after he had cut off all his hair, he bought the wig to cover his head until his hair grows back. And earlier that day, he'd lifted his hat to salute Dylan, who was walking with a, a very important woman on the island. And his wig, you know, stuck to the hat, came completely off his head here. And he said he would have given a 50-pound note not to look ridiculous in front of Dylan. Stephen says he's really sorry for this constraint between Jack and Dylan. And now that Jack's on land and Stephen, you know, they don't have this kind of captain-surgeon relationship necessarily here on land, you know, Jack opens up to Stephen, you know, saying that, you know, Dylan had practically accused Jack of want of conduct after the mm. Cacafuego encounter. You know, and it's, and it's interesting, and I, I kept thinking, what is this want of conduct here? You know, it has this uh, a Google N-gram, A-N-G-R-A-M, uh, <laughs> hit in 1812, but by 1920, it's pretty much disappeared. Now, one dictionary at the time was using an example of it and said, you know, unchastity is a want of conduct in women. It seems to be kind of a failure to observe standards. So, you know, right. Jack was not up to the standards of what a commander should do in this here. Now, huh. Ian, this this engram, we often refer back to it. You saw a reference online recently. Yeah, I did. Let, let's do a little shout out here for a Redditor. You know, we, we often talk about how we are online at facebook.com forward slash lovers whole. We are on Twitter at whole lovers. And we hang out on the Aubrey Matron Appreciation Society and the Patrick O'Brien Appreciation Society on Facebook. We also drop in on Reddit from time to time. So a shout out to Redditor U slash Train Dodger. Thank you for jumping on Reddit and asking for a little reminder on what's this Ngram thing, N-G-R-A-M. It's a Google tool, a bibliographic tool to, to show you how word counts in published literature have changed year by year. We'll stick a reference out to it in our socials. It's a really useful tool for seeing where Patrick O'Brien's language, his vocabulary is really, really authentic and really tightly associated with one particular time. So I'm sorry we've been casting about this idea of engram without explaining it. 
Um, you can go to books.google.com forward slash N-G-R-A-M-S, and you can do your own little search on any of the any of your favorite Patrick O'Brien obscure bits of vocabulary here. Right. Now, if, if you want to go down to a rabbit hole like we often do in researching, look up uh, E-N-G-R-A-M. Fascinating thing has nothing to do with the N-G-R-A-M we're talking about. <laughs> but meanwhile, Google thanks you for your search traffic. So that's exactly. great. <laughs> well, Jack says that he really wanted to ask Dylan for an explanation and satisfaction, a duel. But he realized, in Jack's words, it's heads I win, tails you lose in such a case. For if I were to sink him, why, there he would be. Meaning if Jack shot Dylan, Dylan's dead, of course. But if he were to do the same by me, he'd be out of the Navy before you could say knife, which would amount to much the same thing for him. So if Dylan shoots Jack, you know, then he's, you know, he's in violation of the Articles of War. So... You know, he then adds that Dylan is the best first lieutenant a man could wish for and that he wouldn't want to leave the Sophie in such a pitiable state. No, no matter who wins here, it doesn't work. So I'm, I'm kind of just blown away that out of respect for this unfairness to Dylan and the impact that it would have on, you know, on the ship losing uh, Jack or Dylan or both, Jack doesn't call Dylan out. Jack masters his emotion. Jack sort of overcomes this automatic kind of Pavlovian knee-jerk reaction to honor and, and you know, steps back. So I find this very admirable. And I want to say, Dylan, do more of this, right? Well, yeah. Stephen says that Dylan would not impugn Jack's courage. And Jack, hoping that this is true, looks, you know, kind of carefully at Stephen's face and asks, would he not? And it just kind of hangs in the air. So Jack then invites Stephen to dinner at the Hearts. And Stephen is very excited and accepts. And I, and I love the way O'Brien writes that. Dinner, cried Stephen, as though the meal had just been invented. Dinner? Oh, yes. Charm. Delighted. <laughs> and, and I'm just noticing here, again, these little exchanges between Jack and Stephen are often ending in this book with Jack saying, oh, yes, but surely the following is true. And Stephen very often leaving this little skeptical note at the end of the conversation. Uh, you really? Really? You think so? Uh -huh. Right. Yeah. If Stephen wasn't such a good friend, you'd think he's a pain in the ass. But I think lots of good friends are also sometimes a pain in the ass. So. And, and sometimes good listeners and realizing that you got to figure some of this out for yourself. Yeah. You're really pissed off at me. <laughs> so... <laughs> They're going to get ready for this dinner that apparently is, is hot news for Stephen. Jack, who usually likes to wear his best uniform but doesn't often think about his looks, takes a glance in a mirror. Stephen takes him into Mr. Flory's room for this purpose and Jack looks at himself probably for the first time in a while now and says, well, I suppose I am rather on the hideous side. Oh, yes, says Stephen, very much so. Clearly just going with the moment here and just teasing Jack and yanking his chain a little bit. The face is smeared with grease, he's sunburned, he's got bruises on his eye, the bruises have turned yellow and blue. The left half of his face, says O'Brien, looks like a West African mandrel. And if you want to go looking online for an image of a West African mandrel, it's not the best-looking primate known to the planet. Um, they're heading off towards his dinner. They stop by the prize agent and then they walk to the hearts. And as Stephen stops to contemplate a tree frog, Jack sees Molly Hart alone in an anteroom. 
And I, I love this little moment. But by, by the way, this is only a couple of paragraphs after we've had the mantis moment right. here. So I, I, I'm going to casually accuse Patrick O'Brien of, of the sin of juxtaposition here. There's a bit of maneuvering here. Between mantises, it's the male maneuvering. Here, it's the female maneuvering. Molly decides to put a heavy table between her and Jack. Uh, he says, well, She says, watch out the servants are around here. And he says, well, how about if I meet you at the summer house tonight? And Molly shakes her head, says, indisposé. Very little romantic use of the French vocabulary there. Um, we wonder, Mike, what does that mean? Uh, unwell, um, unwilling, otherwise occupied. This is, you know, some kind of a politely coded phrase that says, not, not tonight, Joseph. Maybe that's going to be a good thing. Maybe she's actually saving Jack from himself, given where his conduct has taken him in some of his other meetings so far. And then she goes on, perhaps with a view of kind of saving and shifting the conversation here. She tells Jack about the Ellises. The wife, Mrs. Ellis, is her college friend. Her husband, Mr. Ellis, cares for our money. Captain Hart is uncommonly obliged to him. And this reference to our money, Molly and Captain Hart's money together, is a bit of a wound for Jack. And apparently this is the payoff, as, as you pointed out earlier on. Uh, the, these Ellises would like to get their son placed in a ship. Uh, they'd like to get their son placed in a ship, particularly like the one commanded by Jack. And Jack says, anything that will give you pleasure is something that I'm on board with. And at that moment, Stephen comes in and we're ready for the dinner. Yet another set piece dinner, Mike. We've had a lot of uh, a lot of meals eaten in the last couple of chapters. Um, O'Brien provides this really delicious description of the Ellises. She, it says, was an odd doll-like little creature with a wooden face, both shy and extremely self-satisfied, rather alarmingly young. She spoke slowly with an odd writhing motion of her upper body, staring at her interlocutor's stomach or elbow, so her exposition took some time. Her husband was a tall, moist-eyed, damp-handed man with a meek, evangelical expression and knock knees. Had it not been for those knees, he would have looked exactly like a butler. And but we're going to get into these, you know, multiple adjective descriptions of people that we dislike, uh, because the author Patrick O'Brien has intended that we should dislike them, and this is absolutely where we're going with the Ellises. This is not a couple that we're meant to to value the company of. If that man lives, reflected Stephen, thinking about Mister Knockneed Ellis. If that man lives, as Letitia prattled, prattled on about Plato, he will become a miser. But it is more likely that he will hang himself. Costive piles, flat feet. <laughs> so fr from his knock knees, we can diagnose the state of his digestion and a nasty case of hemorrhoids and collapsed arches. That's pretty good, pretty good diagnosing right there by the clinician Stephen Maturin. Right, right. Oh, my God. Yeah. As he's listening to Mr. Ellis's wife prattle on to him, he's <laughs> assessing Mr. Ellis. And as you say, O'Brien is telling us exactly what to think of these fine folks. Right. Well, Mrs. Ellis, who dis was described earlier by Molly to Stephen as learned, and Stephen had said learned in what, and Molly had said learned in everything, you know, Mrs. Ellis is seated next to Stephen and, and is trying to demonstrate how learned she is in everything. She immediately, you know, it, it, sitting down with Stephen, gives her views on treating cancer and the conduct of the British allies. Now, the answer to both is prayer, love, and evangelism. So you, know, you, can, uh, you can almost imagine sitting next to this lady here. And, and dinner you know, goes on, as we've been talking about in the canon, very comic. 
You know, while Stephen is talking with another woman, Mrs. Ellis keeps demanding, if you're a real physician, as he tells me you are, how come you come to serve in the Navy? And Stephen finally says, indigence, ma'am, indigence. For all that Kleister's is not gold on shore. And then, of course, a fervent desire to bleed for my country. And, <laughs> and you know, this is, this is a great O'Brien wordplay. Not for all that glitters is not gold, but for all that Kleister's. Kleister's being an old word meaning an enema. So, you know, my, my physician's practice on shore doesn't necessarily net me big gold here, but I and I have this fervent, you know, desire to bleed for my country. But her husband saves her a little bit. He says, The gentleman is joking, my love. With all these prizes, he is a very warm man, as we say in the city, nodding and smiling archly. So the husband's trying to say, no, no, no. What he's trying to say is he's making a lot more money as an officer on this ship than he would be making as a physician in the city here. She laughs, saying, you know, she ought to be careful because now she realizes that Stephen is a wit. But then she pushes it. She says, you know, but he still has to take care of the common sailors, which must be very horrid. And, and you know, you can see Stephen getting into this now here. And he's, you know, this is... What we know about Stephen and his view of humanity, and and this, you know, I'm sure cuts him deeply, but he does not, you know, he he doesn't take the bait. He goes the other direction here and has a blast with this, he says. Why, ma'am, said Stephen, looking at her curiously, for so small and evangelical a woman, she had drunk a remarkable quantity of wine, and her face was coming out in blotches. Why, ma'am, I cut them off pretty short, I assure you, oil of cat is my usual dose, meaning, you know, whipping them, taking the cat out of the bag. Well, then they hear from down the table, quite right, said Colonel Pitt, speaking for the first time. I know I allow no complaints in my regiment. Jack decides he's going to join in the fun. And he says, Dr. Matron is admirably strict. He often desires me to have the men flogged to overcome their torpor and to open their veins both at the same time. A hundred lashes at the gangway is worth a stone of brimstone and treacle, we always say. (laughs) There's discipline, said Mr. Ellis, nodding his head. So I can just see Jack and Stephen, who are internally shaking their heads at his people, having a great time sort of, you know, putting (laughs) them on here. it's the kind of thing that we, we all wish. We all wish we could be as sarcastic and land these zingers uh, and still, you know, manage. The, the point is that they're not causing offense because they're flying straight past the ears of these two Ellis's. So Stephen's not really risking a great to do, except he's giving himself a little bit of selfish kind of satisfaction, at kind of planting one on these two. I, I love her for, for so small and evangelical a woman, she had drunk a remarkable quantity of wine. Yeah. <laughs> We, we always notice the, uh, you know, when I moved to small southern towns, the placement of the alcoholic beverage control store, always several blocks off Main Street. So all of us in the church wouldn't see each other coming and going, you know, from Main Street. <laughs> so a really delicious caricature of these two. And they're caricaturing themselves, really. Uh, but that little piece of social intercourse is not the only interesting thing that's happening around this dinner table. Stephen, sensing that his napkin has slipped off his lap, ducks down under the table to get it. At, at this point, Mike, I am sure that Stephen is under the age of 50 because um, I wouldn't be able to do this move with quite so much stealth and quite so much perspicacity as Stephen's managing. There will be a lot of grunting and groaning and excuse me and kind of b- battering of my head on the tablecloth. Right. Anyway, never mind. 
Stephen's ducking under the table and he sees a curious sight. Colonel Pitt's heavy army boot is planted on top of Molly Hart's right foot and Jack's massive buckled shoe is on her left foot, which she is keeping as far as possible as she can from her right foot. <laughs> so Molly Hart is quite literally playing both sides here. Right. And we go back to the to the events that are happening back, back above the level of the tablecloth here for a while. The food's indifferent. Uh, after the courses, the women leave for the drawing room. I love this moment of Molly limping a little from having these two great big feet on her. Mr. Ellis, the banker, drinking heavily, starts lecturing now. Starts lecturing the company about order, about discipline. He, he talks about the disciplined family being the cornerstone of Christian civilization and characterizes commanding officers in the military being the fathers of their families, showing love through firmness and dread, believing that these are the two great motives of the world, greed and fear. He cites the French Revolution, this disgraceful rebellion in Ireland, as he calls it, the 1798 rebellion we talked about with Paddy Cullivan just a couple of weeks ago. That and the mutinies at Spithead and the Nor, these are all examples of what he says, greed to be put down by fear. And he carries on lecturing as he takes out the chamber pot and pees in front of everybody, saying that the lower classes look up to gentlemen and love them. Only gentlemen are fit to be officers. And by really interesting moment here, we get these privileged people who are very keen on upper middle class privilege and very keen on that being associated with discipline and kind of a puritanical spirit. This was not the Britain of the 18th century. This was the Britain that was coming. This is the new Whiggish Victorian era of Christian upper middle class morals being correct and most of the lower class being de deserving of their poverty and needing to work to kind of restore themselves. Uh, and clearly O'Brien disapproves of it. Clearly this is not the world of Stephen Maturin because he's a, a liberal thinking philosopher. Also, I think not the world of Jack Aubrey because he's not about that kind of privilege. He certainly belongs to the old world of privilege being associated with property, but I don't think Jack Aubrey comes from a world where privilege is associated with moral superiority. No, and, and we just saw him play that out yeah. in his choice of midshipmen saying, you know what? I don't want to go get some genteel guy. I want to get somebody who actually knows how to sail. I'm, I'm looking for somebody who actually can do something, merit, not yeah. class and privilege. And as, as this and odious interest. Ellis guy carries on uh, pontificating about discipline, of course, he's he's relieving himself into a, uh, into a chamber pot and says, oh, I, in the best families that I know of, the, the article is solid silver. Like, yeah, okay. That's a sign of how well qualified you are to judge on society. You piss in a silver pot at dinner. Yeah, great. Well done. <laughs> Yeah, you could almost imagine somebody with a gold toilet. Now, who would do that? <laughs> I couldn't miss the illusion of him standing up, pissing as he's talking about how the lower class looks up to the, <laughs> you know, to these gentlemen, and here are these guys at the table looking up at him pissing right on yeah. them or by them. Right. Oh, what a view! And he does a little a little misquote or a little misattributed quote of a bit of biblical text. He says, "Spare the rod and spoil the child, loveth." chastiseth and jack says well you should come and see how my bosun's mate loveth our defaulters he's joining in with Stephen here just egging this guy on right. and colonel pitt who had been staring at ellis with contempt laughs and excuses himself and jack is about to follow when ugh, this odious idiot ellis summons back in and says i'd like a few extra words Ellis says that he does some business with Mrs. Jordan and has the honor of being presented to the Duke of Clarence. So he's it's, it's kind of establishing his bona fides here a little bit. The Duke of Clarence, Prince William, the third son of George III, becomes uh, King 
William the Fourth and Mrs. Jordan, Dorothea Jordan, an, an Anglo-Irish actress who was his mistress. They had ten illegitimate children together. So he's kind of saying, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the, the the highest circles here. And Jack, thinking to himself that he'd serve with that, as he said, singularly unattractive, hot-headed, cold-hearted, bullying Hanover, says he's acquainted with his highness. And Ellis tells him that he and his wife want their son, Henry, to be an officer and that the Duke, the Duke of Clarence, had recommended sending him to sea. And so they've taken this recommendation. They'd like him to serve on a small, genteel ship where there's less mixed crew and he adds that, you know, there on that small ship, certainly he won't need 50 pounds a year allowance. So it sounds like he's been talking to some men of war's captains. <laughs> and yeah. Jack says, well, he always wants his midshipman guaranteed 50 a year. And Ellis says, oh, oh, well, okay, but but couldn't we buy some things secondhand? But, but, you know, 50 a year is okay for a genteel ship. And he says, you know, Jack is a Tory like him. And as you suggested, you know, this guy, I think, aspires to be a Whig. But Jack is a Tory like him. And that Dylan, of course, is Lord Kenmare's nephew. So, you know, this is quite the ship because these are clearly gentlemen officers here. And he would appreciate Jack taking his son. He suggests that in turn, Jack might benefit from Ellis's inside knowledge and experience of the market. Uh, You know, and I almost want to say, Jack. Anytime somebody's going to give you inside knowledge of the market, run away. But we'll get to that later. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So they then go out to meet the ladies. Uh, O'Brien tells us that Captain Hart is blushing for his guest. And I'm, you know, I think he's a little bit embarrassed by Ellis here. And Jack, you know, Jack just being a good guy, you know, despite all this that's occurred, says, well, you know, maybe let's just take him for a month and we'll see how he likes the sea. See how he does it. So it's a really interesting token of just how odious this Ellis person is that even um, Captain Hart is blushing. Right. You did some great digging on this Lord Kenmare. There's a connection to a real-life Dylan, right? Yeah, this was fascinating. You know, sometimes O'Brien just seems to throw these names out here that Dylan is Lord Kenmare's, um, you know, nephew, that it, this could be Thomas Brown, uh, the, fourth, the fourth Viscount of Kenmare, um, now, he died in 1795. He also has his son, Valentine, or Valentine Brown, who becomes the first Earl of Kenmare. Um, either event, this is a family who's one of the few Roman Catholic landowners in Ireland. And they really worked hard to show that Roman Catholic could be incorporated into the Protestant establishment of, of you know, kind of 18th century and then 19th century Ireland. They were very close friends to the British government. They actually recruited Irishmen to fight with Britain against America in the War of 1812. And in fact, um, you know, looking at genealogy records, uh, this Valentine Brown had married the third daughter of Henry Dillon, the 11th Viscount Dillon. So, you know, here it is. O'Brien just picked, you know, did not pick these names out of thin air. A real connection here to history. Fascinating. Fascinating. Thank you. Well, this this dinner and this haggling over the appointment of the midshipman is all done. They're headed home, and on the way down the pigtail stairs, Jack turns to apologize to Stephen for the wretched dinner that Molly Hart had given. Um, he says he can hardly believe that Molly would concoct such a, such a wretched company. He remarks about the soldier, this colonel, calls him a lumpish brute, and worries that he might be quite a nuisance to Mrs. Hart, since she is free and unguarded, quite unsuspecting, can be opposed upon. <laughs> and of course, 
he doesn't know what Stephen saw as he uh, glanced beneath the table there. And, and Jack, not for the first time, and certainly not for the last time, lacking a bit of perspective here. Perhaps he should have been paying attention to the praying mantises when he was with Stephen earlier on. Right. And Stephen kind of goes along with this conversation. He says, yes, the, the money man Ellis was an eminently curious study. Um, Jack passes it off and attributes it to the fact that Ellis sits around thinking about money all day. Like, that can't be good for your moral health. Oh, he says he was a dull, ignorant, superficial, darting, foolish, prating creature in himself, to be sure. Classic Stephen Matcher in line there. Um, but I found him truly fascinating. The pure bourgeois in a state of social ferment. There was that typical, costive, hemorrhoidal faces, the knock knees, the drooping shoulders, the flat feet splayed out, the ill breath, the large, staring eyes, the meek complacency. And of course, you notice that womanly insistence on authority and beating once he was thoroughly drunk? I would wager that he is very nearly impotent. That would account for the woman's restless garrulity, uh, meaning talkative, being talkative about trivial things, um, would account for her desire for predominance absurdly combined with those girlish ways and her thinning hair. She will be bald in a year or so. And this is quite funny and it's quite lighthearted kind of banter on Stephen's part, but it's got Jack thinking. He says, it might be just as well if everybody were impotent, said Jack somberly. It would save a world of trouble. And Mike, that puts us in mind of Stephen earlier on talking about people striking out their character at this age and, and Jack's comment about the, you know, the, the, the dangers of being driven solely by the, by the animal instincts. There's a, there's a lot that we're going to come back to here later in the canon. Right. Well, Stephen says that he looks forward to seeing what kind of child they produce, you know, when they get their son on board. And Jack says, well, they'll know pretty well by the time they get back from Alexandria. And, and Stephen is stunned. Alexandria and Lower Egypt? Yeah, they have to run an errand for Sir Sidney Smith's squadron, and we'll hear a lot more about Sir Sidney in the future, before they get on to their next cruise. And, you know, Stephen's delighted. He, you know, Jack, why didn't you come out telling me this immediately? And he sings the Admiral's praises in Latin. He calls him the father of the fleet, this wonderful man. And Jack really doesn't understand the excitement. He tells Stephen, you know, it's like a 1200 league round trip across the Mediterranean with little chance of a prize coming or going. And Stephen has a great assessment here. I just love this and love seeing Jack's reaction. I did not think you could have been such an earthling, cried Stephen. For shame. Alexandria is classic ground. So it is, said Jack, his good nature and pleasure in life flooding back at the sight of Stephen's delight. And with any luck, I dare say, we shall have a sight of the mountains of Candia too. But come, we must get aboard. If we go on standing here, we shall be run down. Ah. <laughs> so, a long last, a little positive note. And the positive note comes from Stephen and Jack helping each other out and making each other happy. Um, I've got a worried feeling in my heart, though, that Stephen and his high hopes of a trip to the classic cruising grounds of Attica and the classical world and the Eastern Mediterranean, I have a worry that that all could be at risk. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Ian, that, you know, this, you know, Dylan unraveling Jack and Dylan's relationship, is it, you know, possibly retri retrievable? 
you know, Jack makes this sound like such a routine cruise here. And of course, that's always, you know, often an O'Brien setup for, oh, yeah, that's what you think, right? Ah, yeah. They've, they've had their second brush, uh, a second close encounter with the Caca Fuego. I can't help but think we're going to see her again here. Yeah. And that praying mantis scene, a little unnerving. So I'm kind of wondering what's in store for Jack and Molly Hart and Captain Hart and perhaps Lord Keith. <gasps> ah. Maybe Jack's luck could be running out. I mean, he, he might have no chance of being promoted. Um, we've got all these themes and motifs that O'Brien's been dropping in pretty much every other paragraph. It's interesting because we're, we're reading it now, already having read our way through many, many later books, and we get this delight of seeing all these coming joys that are just being signaled in a low-key way for us here. Uh, and Mike, we, we also have this scapegoat metaphor. Is that going to get played out? Who is going to be the Cheslin of the Sophie? Right. Well, I think there's only one thing for it, and We're going to have to reach up next week, take this book back off the shelf, and I'll have to ask you, what do you say to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next week? Mike, I shall like it of all things. in Swatham in 1776. Now, mm. I pause. Did I get that town name right? Oh, you did. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> like a native. Good. <laughs>